You're listening to The Gathering Church Podcast, located in Asheville, North Carolina. The Gathering is a place where you can belong before you believe. To find out more, visit gatherashville.org. Welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor, and it's so good to have you guys with us here today. Big welcome to everybody joining us online. We're so honored to have you here as well. You know, at the Gathering Church, uh, we really believe that this is a place where we want you to feel at home. We want you to come in here and feel like you're a part of something. We want you to feel seen, noticed, wanted, welcome the moment you walk into this place. And uh, and so I hope that somebody did that for you today. If you're watching online, this is my moment to make you feel at home. I'm in your living room right now. You're wearing pajamas. I'm in blue jeans. It's not even weird. It's good to have you here today. We'd love to have you in person, but here's what we know. We know that uh, a few weeks ago, uh, just a, a couple weeks ago, at our five-year anniversary, we hit capacity in this space. We couldn't fit anybody else. All our chairs were full, and, it, and we began our, our wheels turning on how do we continue uh, to be able to meet in this space in the YMCA here and, and do it safely and be able to follow as many safety precautions as we can during this time, but also make sure that there's room for us to bring our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and the people that we meet and for our people who have been watching online, waiting, not so sure, to come back and feel safe. In order to do that, we, we've been thinking about how we can expand and, and make more room. My first thought was that we put scaffolding in to create a, a whole additional floor for people. Seemed like too much work. So instead, we're going to be launching a second service here at the Reuter YMCA on March 21st. In just three weeks, we're going to be going to two services, we'll be adding a service. And so we'll still have this 10 a.m. service, but we will be adding an 8.30 a.m. service to the YMCA. Where's the morning people at? Listen, there's a lot of pros to an 8.30 a.m. service. You get out of there, it's still breakfast time. You get to have some breakfast right after church. It's going to be great. We can't wait. I, I would encourage you, if you're coming to 10 a.m. and you've never been a part of the Dream Team before, it takes people for us to do this and to serve our community. We believe there are so many folks right outside our doors who are in such desperate need of relationship, of community, who haven't had somebody look them in the eyes in a, in a year now. And we want to be able to offer that to people. We want this to be a space where you can come and worship uh, our Father and, and surrounded by our, the family of God and other believers. And so we want to create more room. Let me encourage you to, if you've never been a part of it, think about joining the Dream Team. Be a part of this with us. Help us to create more space here at the gathering for more people to come and engage in worship. There's so many different ways and areas that you can serve. We want you to find a spot to serve that is perfect for you, that you enjoy serving in. And so uh, let me just encourage you to go check out Growth Track this week. If you have not yet, Growth Track 
Track is easy to find. You can just put on your Connect card that you're interested in Growth Track, and we will get you right to it. And uh, man, I'd love to encourage you that. Let me also encourage you, if you're coming to 10 a.m. service and you're, not, you're choosing not to serve yet and be a part of the Dream Team, think about coming to that 8.30 a.m. service because I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a lot easier for us to get our visitors, our friends, the folks that we're inviting to come to that 10 a.m. service. Don't we know it's a little bit easier to get to 10 a.m. than 8.30 a.m.? And so I'll ask you to do one of two things. Either bring somebody with you to enjoy that 10 a.m. service or think about moving to that 8.30 a.m. service so we can continue to create space for people to encounter uh, a, a worship experience with the one who created them. And so I'm excited about that. That's going to be good. That is March 21st. We'll be adding an 8.30 a.m. live service. Well, today we are in week two of our series called Relationship. Relation uh, shift. It's a play on words. You see what I did there? What we're talking about is how in our relationships, oftentimes, we are only one shift away. A shift, uh, sometimes a small one, sometimes a big one, from being in the path of a healthy relationship. Last week we talked about shifting our expectations and how oftentimes in a relationship we've got the wrong expectations for the person we're in a relationship with. We've got the the unspoken expectations that are getting in the way, and we talked about how we can shift those and, uh, and do better in the way of expectations. And today, I want to talk about our strategy. I want to talk about shifting our strategy. Whether or not it's intentional, you are living out a strategy for your relationship. You have a strategy that's gotten your relationship to exactly where you are right now. Your strategy is the way that you communicate with one another, the way you resolve conflict, the rhythms you've developed, the ways that you develop intimacy, the, the way that the schedule that you keep or that you don't keep as a family or as a couple. All of these things make up your strategy. And when we're not intentional about what that strategy is, one develops on its own. Now, maybe you're just that dream couple, and when, even when you're not intentional about it, the strategy that develops for you is a healthy one. But for most of us, if we're not intentional about the plans that we make, the strategy that we make for our relationships, the one that would develop is one that would lead us to a place of unhealthy relationship. And where it usually breaks down is where our strategies lead us to an unhealthy place, and then we don't have a good strategy to get back to a good one. Maybe your relationship isn't in its healthiest position right now. Last year has done something to our relationships. It's changed them in many ways. Many of us are working from home. We were forced to be home for one, two, three, four, five, six, however many times you had to quarantine last year because you got the sniffles. We were forced to be home but to take care. Maybe somebody that you love had the virus last year and you had to care for them in that season. And, and then, Or maybe it was during the lockdown. You were at, at home just trying to figure out what to do, kicking around the house, kicking around the yard together, whatever it was, however it happened, at some point the dynamic in your relationship was forced to change, just like the dynamic in everything else in your life in the past year. 
And for many of us, maybe that put some, maybe that was some good moments where you were saying, hey, it's so good to be together. I'm enjoying this time of rest. This has been good for our relationship. But it also might have led to a little bit of a, a moment of, hey, all the things that were little cracks in our relationship now are under pressure and they're starting to break down a little bit. We're starting to experience new strain in our relationship. We're bickering more. We're arguing. Things aren't going well. I've got more complaints than I had last year about this relationship. And when that happens, when we get to those places, and we're not intentional about the strategies that we keep to keep ourselves healthy, here's what our strategies usually look like instead. First is that we complain. We complain. First step in any bad relational strategy is complaining. We complain to each other. Just a, a constant little bit of this, a little bit of that starts out kind of jovial, smiling, a little elbow here and there, and it ends with rage. We complain to our friends and our family. Oh, man, I just can't believe they're doing this. They're doing this at home. It's driving me crazy. Oh, I'm going to lose my mind. We complain to our kids sometimes. We pick apart all the things that our spouse or our significant other has done wrong, and we start to dissect it and lay it apart. We fixate on specific things and bring them up in every conversation and in every argument. Every argument ends in the same place. It's a never-ending circle of the complaints that we have. We complain to our friends and family both in front of our spouse or our significant other and behind their backs. And it starts out as a simple, she drives me crazy when, he makes me insane when he does this. He's been in a mood lately. But over time it becomes, I just can't stand it when. I don't know why, they just can't. And we complain about our relationships and we criticize our significant others, and then we wait. We just have a strategy where we just, we just wait. We're just gonna wait, see if things get better. Maybe, maybe it, it just needs time. We just need to give it some time to get better. We wait for them to pursue us. You know what, the, things have not been good relationally lately, and I need them to come find me and make it better. I'm just waiting on them. They're going to apologize at some point. They're going to sit down and say, here's all the things I've been doing wrong, and here's how we can get it right. We're waiting on them to fix it with us, to apologize to us, to make the relationship work for us. We have issues in our relationship, but since they don't believe that they are our fault, since we never believe that it's our fault, it's so easy to see the faults in others. It's so difficult to see the faults in ourselves. And so we just wait for the other person to make it right. Maybe you're not going through a season like this in your marriage or your relationship. Maybe you don't feel like it's gotten this tense. Maybe you're not complaining out loud. But maybe, maybe you don't feel like you need to wait for somebody to make it right. But maybe it's just quiet in your marriage. Maybe your strategy of waiting is different. You're waiting for things to get interesting. Waiting for things to get exciting again. You're waiting for passion. You're waiting for a spark. Maybe you've got some complaints that are not out loud, but they're deep down in your hearts, in your subconscious. Things that are creating distance. Things that irritate you, but you don't know how to say it out loud, how to express it. Maybe you wait, not really for them, not on purpose, but more so you're just waiting for things to get better. You think, you know what, we're just tired. It's just been a lot of stress lately. We're just not connecting. You know, we're just not connecting. I hear that all the time. 
yeah, I don't know what it is. We're just not connecting right now, but maybe we will later. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. We just need to wait. But you're not doing anything about it, and neither are they. And either of these scenarios is a part of our strategy, is a part of what, the, what direction we're choosing to go in relationally can lead us to deciding that we give up. Maybe that sounds crazy to you. Way out there. That could never happen. That's not an option. Things may not be great, but we're definitely not going to give up. But you could give up fighting before you give up each other. You could give up trying. You could give up conversation. You could give up the, the hard conversations, the confrontations that are necessary before you give up. Every couple who has given up on one another started out at an altar or in a magical moment thinking that they never would. But our strategy determines our destination. The strategies that we write for our relationships and for every part of our lives determine where we are going. And if we're not intentional about it, if we don't think about it, if we don't plan for it, if we're not doing what we need to do to go in the proper direction then where they go is never where we want them to go. There's a wild story in Genesis that I want us to look at today. It's in Genesis chapter 29. Honestly, if you're trying to search the Bible for good relationship advice, Genesis is not usually a good place to start. There's, there's a lot that goes wrong throughout the book of Genesis. In fact, I would suggest that is the story. And, uh, and, but this, this one, I love what happens here. Now, you're, I'm going to talk about Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. Jacob is one of the fathers of our faith. He is someone that God used to do amazing things. In fact, the Bible is full of people who are very flawed that God chose to use to do incredible things. I find a lot of hope in that. I find a lot, I find encouragement in that. And Jacob is not also necessarily someone you want to be taking a lot of relationship advice from. However, he does something in the beginning of his marriage that I think is so important, that matters, that we need to learn from today. And so I want us to look at it together. Here's the story. This is Genesis chapter 29. Verse 9. The background is this. Uh, Jacob, if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, the, the old customs that they had back then was that a firstborn son received a type of blessing, even the promise of God on their lives in this specific family. It's called the birthright. It was very important. And Jacob was a twin. He had a twin brother named Esau, born just before him. And Jacob deceived his father into receiving that birthright. He kind of stole the birthright. This created some family tension. They had some issues, and instead of working them out together, they just, Jacob ran away. He ran away, and he was looking for the next part of his life, somewhere to go to hide from his brother, to be safe, and to live in the blessing that he had received. And so he finds himself uh, at a well, at a settlement for someone that he knows. This is his uncle. This is his mother's brother. And so he's at this settlement, and this is Genesis chapter 29, verse 9. It says this, while he was still talking with them, Jacob is talking to some men who are working there. It says, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. And when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, yes, this, this is his cousin. This is thousands of years ago. Let's just move on. 
When Jacob saw Rachel's daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and he began to weep aloud. I wonder if you remember the moment that you decided that somebody was the person that you were going to give your life to. If you're in that relationship, if you're here and, and, you, and, you, and you're married or you're, you're dating and you're just like, this is the one. I wonder if you remember that moment. I wonder if you felt like Jacob. If you just, uh, Rael would probably tell you that I did just begin to weep aloud. And I don't know if that's true or not. I don't remember a lot about it. But there was something, there was something magical. He, he saw her and he just began to fall apart over how smitten he was with her. Now, maybe um, for you, it was love at first sight. Maybe it was slower than that. Rael and I were close friends for three years before we dated, and I was smitten with her pretty much right away. In fact, this is a great story. It's a sidebar. I'll be quick. But Rael and I, we were at a freshman mixer our freshman year of high school. What, who doesn't love, not high school, college. Who doesn't love a freshman mixer? We're at this freshman mixer in college, and this girl with, and she's going to love that I shared this, bright pink hair comes walking towards me. And I think she's coming to talk to me. She's coming to talk to me. College is going great so far. And this girl with bright pink hair, she comes and she just kind of passes right in front of me and goes by. And as she's like right here awkwardly close because it's a crowded party, this was a time when we used to all gather together and we could see each other's faces and we get, we'd touch each other. I actually hated that part of the world before COVID. I don't like to be touched. Anyways, and she gets to right here and I said, I like your hair. I like your hair. I looked at that bright pink hair. I was like, I like your hair. It's the only thing I think of to say. And she got to like right here and she turned around and she said, look, if you don't like my hair, you don't have to say anything about it. You don't have to just make up a compliment just to be nice. And then she just turned around and kept walking. And I just looked at her and I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with that girl. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Let's do this. That was it for me. For Rail, it was a little bit slower. It took some time, you know. Three, around three years or so later, she came around. But I, I remember when I knew I wanted to spend my life with her. And in that moment, there was absolutely nothing that I wouldn't do to make that happen. Maybe you remember something similar. But time comes in, and it, it tends to rob us of those feelings, doesn't it? It makes us forget how hard we were willing to work in the beginning. This is verse 12. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father. This is a good pickup line back then. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. And so she ran and told her father. Verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. And then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. And after Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me your wages and tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. We're going to move on past Leah's eyes as well. Maybe she just needed glasses, was what Gina said this morning. Jacob was in love with Rachel. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. He said to her father, I will work for seven years if you will give me her hand in marriage. And Laban said, it is better that I give her 
to you than to some other man. So stay here with me. Verse 20. And this, this is one of the most romantic verses in the Bible. It says this, Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they only seemed like a few days to him because of his love for her. Isn't that nice? He worked for seven years to get her, but they only seemed like a few days because of his love for her. The story gets wild from there, but that's for another day. Today, let me focus on this one thing. Jacob was willing to work for Rachel. In fact, he ends up working for 14 years to get to spend his life with her. If you want the healthiest relationship that you can have, you are going to have to be willing to work. In fact, I believe that any good and healthy relationship requires work. Work. Work that doesn't always feel like work, and work that some days feels like work. Don't you know there was a moment when Jacob was three years into this, when he got up on some day, it was rainy, it was cold, and he had to go outside and do farm work, go care for some sheep, and he must have felt like, I don't know, man, I don't know, I don't know if I can do this or not. I got four years left of work. This is hard. I could go somewhere else. It would be easier than this. Maybe it would be easier to just start over somewhere. But Jacob kept at it. And when it was over, it says that all that work seemed like the blink of an eye because the love that he had for her was worth it. I think you've got to be willing to shift from a strategy of complacency in your relationship to a strategy of work in your relationship. I think we come into our relationships often with this romantic comedy, rom-com idea of a complacent strategy, of that it's just going to be easy, we're going to be in love, it's going to be good, we're going to be able to drift through, and I I can just wait, you know, if things don't go right, I'll just complain, and I'll just hope that it gets better. But a a strategy of complacency will take you into places that you don't want to go. And a strategy of work is how a relationship stays healthy. Let's get from a strategy of waiting, a strategy of complacency, a strategy of, of complaining to a strategy of work. Nothing is easy all the time. And if you want what's good in this life, it requires hard work. So if your strategy hasn't been working, if, it's, if you feel like your relationship's gone stale, if you're fighting, if you're not connecting, if you feel like you want to give up, or if you're not feeling that but you don't want to get to that place, let's shift to a strategy of work. Three things that we can work on in a relationship. First is we'll work on honor. Honor. You've got to make it your strategy to intentionally work on honoring the person you're in a relationship with honor. Romans 12 verse 10 says, be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. Honor one another above yourselves. This is tough. It's not natural. It's something you really got to work for. Honor is different than respect. Respect is earned. You earn my respect. You earn my respect by who you are, by your integrity, by your character, earns my respect. What you've done for me earns my respect. Honor is not earned. Honor is given. I choose to give you honor. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what sort of things I've got against you or or whatever it may be, I would choose 
to honor you. Honor is a choice. In a relationship, we may not always earn one another's respect, but we can make the choice to always show one another honor. Honor. They may not deserve your honor. They may have messed up. They may not have been kind, but honor is not earned or deserved. It is given. We honor not because they deserve it, but because she is my wife and she is worthy of my honor. This means we give each other the benefit of the doubt. It means that we listen before we respond. It means we always speak well of one another. You are their defender, never their detractor. It means that when you have some issues together, you can work them out together in a conversation leading somewhere. You can bring someone else into that, a trusted friend, a counselor. But we defend one another. We don't detract from. We don't attack. We don't tear each other down. We show honor. Rael and I are always reminding each other because we tend to forget that we are on the same team. We are, that's kind of one of our mantras at the Red Wine House. Hey, hey. Hey, we're on the same team. What hurts her hurts me. What hurts me hurts her. We go together or not at all. And I think so often what the enemy tends to do is convince us in our relationships when we are going through something that we are going through it alone and that whoever we are in a relationship with is a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. This is one of his deepest wounds into your relationships and especially your marriage. So what I believe is that the best way to come against that is to decide together we are on the same team. And if we're going to charge against adversity, if we're going to go against challenges, struggles, or a bad day, if you're having a bad day, I'm having a bad day because we're on the same team. Same team. And to do this, to honor one another, to remember that we're on the same team, to do it like that, we cannot, we cannot hold any kind of bitterness in our hearts against each other, which means we've got to constantly forgive one another. Because I don't know about you, but in a relationship, I'm constantly in need of forgiveness. I do things that are unkind all the time. You've got to live with a posture of forgiveness. I talk about a posture uh, of humility is one of our values here. Humility is our posture. A posture is different than choosing something. A posture means that I wake up every day, so I don't know about you, I got kind of a bad natural posture. I got like my head sticks forward and my shoulders slowing down. It's kind of me all the time. I have to, I'm all, you'll see me, I'll be standing around and I'll be like, I'll do this. Because I'm choosing to stand up straight. And I'm choosing to correct my posture. A posture is something that we're actively working on, that we choose. It's not just something that we're gonna do from time to time, it's the way we stand. Forgiveness needs to be a posture in your marriage. You need to always be ready to offer it, always to work for it, to find the place in your heart where you can forgive what is happening, what has happened, especially the small things, but even the big things. Bitterness is a lie. Bitterness is the lie that it will protect us from the pain that they would cause us. Bitterness is the lie that it would hurt the person that hurt us. Bitterness only hurts you. I heard it said that holding bitterness in your heart is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Ephesians 4 verse 31 says, get rid of all bitterness. 
All rage and anger, brawling and slander. If you've got brawling in your relationships, you've got to get it out. Along with every form of malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. We've got to get rid of it. And my prayer for you is that you would both make a decision to honor one another, no, what, no matter what, to work on honor, and that you would make it a part of your strategy. But if that's not the case, and if your spouse doesn't honor you, you will never be more Christ-like than when you honor them expecting nothing in return. Now, you've got to hear me on this. It's important. A relationship needs a mutual strategy to succeed. A relationship needs a mutual strategy to succeed. You both have to do it. Honoring someone doesn't mean letting them walk all over you. Honoring someone doesn't mean allowing them to abuse you. You can stand up for yourself when it's appropriate. You can get help when you need it. And you can do these things while still honoring your significant other. Honor, honor is not deserved. It is given. It's not earned. Let's shift to a strategy of honor in our relationships. The second thing to work on as we work, because it's worth it, is pursuit. Pursuit. I didn't just wait for three years for Rael to fall in love with me. I am charming. I am not that charming. I pursued her. I pursued her relentlessly for three years. I almost pursued her too much. It almost got creepy. And I still pursue her. I pursue her right now. Ten years we've been married. I will not stop pursuing her. I will not stop pursuing her heart. Because our hearts long to be pursued. Everyone wants to be pursued. We were created with a need to be loved, but also to be wanted. Pursuit communicates both that I love you and that I want you. It's one of the reasons our relationship with God is something we begin longing for as a child. Our children long for the peace and for the relationship that God offers. They long for it. We long for it as adults. We may change the name of it. We may look for purpose and pursuit in a million other places, in people and relationships. We may look for it in in position and authority. We may look for it in uh, platforms. We may look for it at work. We may look for it in money. We are always in desire of something to want us as much as we want to be wanted. That is in you and placed in you because of the way that your Father has pursued you. You were made for that because He pursues you. It says in 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and He came for us. He sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You have been pursued. Listen to me. If you're not in a relationship with Jesus, this is the first place to start the work. It's an easy one here because you have been pursued. The work is finished. It is done. You can enter in relationship with Him with just a simple decision, a decision of surrender. We desire pursuit in all of our human relationships because of our spiritual relationship beginning in pursuit. That means, pursuit means uh, that we should love one another as a reflection of the way that God loves us. 
It means we don't just wait for them to change, or we don't just wait for them to do what we want them to do. We don't just wait for them to say the right thing. We don't just wait for this season to end or for things to get better. We don't just wait for there to be less stress on our relationship because it'll be easier. We don't just wait. We pursue. We pursue. We pursue one another. Genesis 29.8 says, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I will work for seven years in return for your younger daughter, daughter Rachel. He made a decision to pursue her, and he knew it would be work, and he chose it anyways. You've got to make this practical. Make a list of ways that you can pursue your significant other this week. Have a date night. Go out together or stay in together. Drink a glass of wine by a fire. Ask questions. Be for them what you want them to be for you. Surprise them if they like surprises. Uh, learn their love language, the way that they receive love. There's a, there's a, we use that term in the church, in the Christian world a lot, love languages. It's this idea that there's five ways that we could receive love. The whole point of it is just to understand that the way that your spouse or your significant other receives love may be different than the way that you do. And so we always just tend to give it the way that we would want it. You know, if, we, if mine is gifts, I just keep buying rail gifts. She doesn't care about gifts. She wants quality time. And I need to be able to give her love. The way, pursuing her means not just giving her what I would want, but to give her what she would want, to give her the quality time. Pursuit. Write down some ways to pursue them. Pursue them. Learn their love language. Do whatever it takes because the work is hard, but the work is worth it. It's time to have a strategy of work in our relationships and to make pursuit a part of that. Don't just wait, pursue. And then finally, you just got to work. You got to be willing to work on the relationship. Always, constantly. Sometimes I think we get this lie in our heads that it should be easy. That it should just be easy. We get so mad when it's not easy. We think something's wrong with them when it's not easy. Something's wrong with us when it's not easy. Just, you know what, the whole thing, let's call the whole thing off. None of it is easy. It's supposed to be easy. It shouldn't be this hard. It is this hard because people are difficult, myself included. We are. Being able to go through life together is work requires us to be willing to work on the relationship. Jacob said, seven years I'll work for you. Things didn't go the way he wanted on the wedding day. Go read Genesis 29 if you're curious. But he said, fine, I'll work another seven years. I'll just keep working however long it takes. This is the person I choose. This is, this is the direction I want my life to go in. And so whatever it takes, I'm willing to do the work. I wonder if you're willing to do the work. I believe it's worth it for us. I believe if we're willing to do the work, that there's so many good things in store for us. Good times and in bad, do the work. If you're married, remember those vows in sickness and in health, in poverty and in wealth, in good times and in bad. I've been in all over this place in my relationship but we work, and we always work to get better. We work to know one another more deeply. We work to care for one another better. Have a strategy for work in your relationship. Make communication a part. Have a strategy for the way that you communicate with one another. What you're going to talk about and when. Have a strategy 
for intimacy in your marriage? Have a strategy to show one another value. How do I add value to my spouse? Have a strategy for how you argue and fight. Sometimes you've got to get it out. Have a strategy for it. Have a plan. Have the conversations so that you can do it well. The passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we always read at weddings, it just really does exist, I think, as the perfect manual on how to love well. Honestly, Paul wrote this to the church with the idea that this is how you should treat people. And almost everything that I've said today, I think you can apply it to how we're supposed to treat people as followers of Christ. It's not just about a romantic relationship. However, if our romantic relationships are based on love and on work, this passage tells us just what to do. It says love is patient, love is kind, I get stuck right at those two sometimes. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm not, I failed already today at number one. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. Honor one another. It's not self-seeking. I mean, I, I learned firsthand when we had our first child exactly how selfish I am in our relationship. I learned that I just love me and I love to do what I want to do and I love to do whatever benefits me the most. A child will teach you that quickly, but you don't have to have a child to know that in our relationships, we're often very self-seeking. You should apologize to me because you hurt my feelings. You should do the dishes because I cooked the dinner. This is the rules of the universe. However, Love is not self-seeking. Love doesn't say you should because I, because I did, or you because of me. Love just gives. It's not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. Anybody got a record of wrongs? Hey, remember when you get in an argument and you get to the record of wrongs stage of an argument? Start to recite things that happened a couple months ago, a year ago, 20, 25 years ago, it starts to come out. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. None of that comes naturally to us, does it? We do literally the opposite of all of these things on our own. Maybe there's a moment in the beginning when chemistry takes over and we're all googly-eyed and these things are easy. But it doesn't take long for that to wear off and for our record of wrongs to start to grow and for us to start seeking ourselves, to stop showing honor, to stop protecting, to stop trusting. We got to do the work to stay there. We got to make it our strategy to work, to make this an important part of our lives. We got to do the work to love well. We've got to be intentional in our strategy of work on our relationships. It's important to shift our strategies to work. Now, if you're in here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, maybe you don't have a relationship and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And you're hearing this, maybe you zoned out a while ago. Listen, I think one of the most important things for me to know in my marriage is that this is the way that God loves me. And so this is how I'm supposed to love my wife. 
And if you're in here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I need you to know. Just know. This is the way that God loves you. We get an idea about who God is. And he's sitting in some ivory tower somewhere judging me, mad at me because I did this or I didn't do that. This is how God thinks about you. He's patient. The Bible says that God is love. So where it says love, you could replace it with his name. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. He does not boast. He's not proud. He doesn't dishonor you. He's not self-seeking. He's not easy to anger. In fact, one of the ways he describes himself to Moses the day he declares his name is he says, I'm slow to anger. Do you think God's mad at you? You ever thought he's mad at you? Maybe you never entered into a relationship with him because you thought he was mad at you. He's not mad at you. He's slow to anger. He keeps no record of wrongs. How many of you think that there is this long-running record of wrongs God has against you and somehow you got to atone for every one of those things before you could ever get up to his level? you got to know that there was a record of wrongs and it's been erased that Jesus went to a cross for you, that he defeated death for you, so there would be no record of wrongs for you. God is not looking at your past. He just has dreams for your future. He has something he wants to do in you, through you, for you. He is love to you, perfect love. He doesn't have to work at this. This is who he is. He keeps no record of wrongs. He doesn't delight in evil. He rejoices with the truth. He always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. Don't you want to be in a relationship with a God like that? If you're here and you're not, it is as easy as making a choice right now to surrender, to say, I'm yours, to give him your life. I promise he's not, (laughs) you can trust him with it. It won't always be easy from there forward, but you'll feel full, whole, complete, in him. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're ready for that this morning, just say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I need to be loved like that. I need to be pursued like that. I need to be wanted like that. I need the kind of love that only you can offer me. And so God, forgive me for my mistakes. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own. I lay my wrongs at your feet. I know you will erase it give myself to you. Everything that I am from this day forward, I am yours. I want you. I choose you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Gathering Church Podcast is produced by the Gathering Church Creative Team. Want to get involved? Fill out a Connect card online at gatherashville.org Find us on Facebook at The Gathering Church or on Instagram at Gather Asheville.